If I tell them you're in your right mind, they'll put you in prison. They'll put you in prison. They'll put you in prison. Prison? Because I'm in my right mind? What a world. Go to prison, you'll never act again. Hello and welcome to Fighting Anime, a podcast about life's big questions. I'm Marshall McCready. Today's episode is going to be about George Orwell's concept of doublethink, which he develops in his famous dystopian novel, 1984. I'm going to be describing what doublethink is, how it works, and how you can do it. Obviously, you don't want to cultivate doublethink because doublethink is an aspect of the psychology of an authoritarian subject, basically someone who has been psychically enslaved and indoctrinated. It's bad. The point of learning about doublethink and how it works and how you can do it is so that you can learn how to not do it. That's the point. And I think there's a lot of utility in this. The main segment is uh, all about doublethink, and it relates to all kinds of stuff, like what does it mean to lie, the human psychology of self-deception, which is an interesting problem because if you can lie to yourself, that kind of implies that you are simultaneously the liar and the deceived, but there is only one of you, so how does that work? I kind of unpack that. The relationship between self-deception and self-discipline the fundamental forms of thought, dogmatism, and learned ignorance, what it means to act, etc. I think that you will like it. Um, this all relates to a blog post that I published recently called Doing Doublethink, a Manual for Self-Deception, which I will have linked in the show notes. The second segment is going to be something that will probably become a recurring segment on this podcast, and it's just going to be thoughts and recommendations. I'm just going to rapid fire some thoughts that you might find provoking and interesting, and a few content or media recommendations and why I think they're worth consuming. These are things that I might usually post on social media, but I'm trying to be on social media quite a bit less. I have a weird relationship with social media. I don't use it like a normal person in the sense that I like to share (laughs) thoughts about politics and psychology and stuff like that that are kind of deep or provocative. And what's weird is people in life, they quite a few people actually have told me in person that they like my posts and they find them really interesting. But 100% of the people who have told me this in person don't ever interact with my posts. They don't like them or comment on them. So it's really easy for me to forget or to uh, not, you know, be uncertain about whether people actually are reading them and finding them interesting. And, and you know, I don't care what people think. I really, uh, I, I don't. I like it if you hate what I'm saying. That's kind of fun for me. But what I really have a hard time with is if, is if you're not thinking at all about what I'm saying. If you neither like it nor dislike it. If you think it's just beneath contemplating or not worth thinking about. There's this great line 
in the new Kendrick Lamar album, which the album, by the way, is a fucking masterpiece. I'm going to talk about it more. Um, but my favorite track, or the one that I personally relate to the most, that's a, that's a better way to put it, is uh, Count Me Out. And he has this line in the chorus where he says, I love when you count me out. My name is in your mouth. And how I understand that is uh, Kendrick is saying, hey, I like it when you intentionally exclude me because that means I stand for something, right? If someone goes, oh, Kendrick or oh, Marshall, um, I don't want that guy around. That guy represents something that I disagree with. That means we stand for something, right? That means we symbolize something. If everyone in the world likes you, you likely don't stand for much. Um, obviously, it just because people dislike you doesn't mean you actually stand for something. Um, but uh, but it can. And I want to stand for certain things that people disagree with. You know, I have opinions, and I have pretty strong opinions. And I would rather people care about my opinions, whether or not they agree with me or disagree with me. And you know, because to care about someone's opinion is to care about them, than um, than them not care at all. So that's that's my hard relationship with social media, where um, I would so much rather people just like mass uh, dunk on me or something than to not not engage at all. Um, so it's just not a good place. So, anyways, I will just be sharing the stuff that I might have shared on there on this podcast. And hopefully you find it interesting, and hopefully you like my recommendations. A couple housekeeping notes. I'm going to try to add podcast chapters to this episode and future episodes. Um, What this will do, hopefully, if I can make this work, I don't know if when I upload the audio file to Substack, which is the podcast host, if they have it such that they can read the metadata uh, that I would create by adding the chapters. the goal, though, is that if you start listening to the podcast and you take a break or something and you get back to it and you want to kind of hear again the initial context of whatever it is that you left off listening to, that you can just skip to the chapter um, and they should be labeled. Um, and hopefully there's a function on your podcast app that allows you to see the chapters and to um, just go directly to a specific spot in the podcast but we'll see if that works also i'm gonna try to keep training these podcasts out i really enjoy making them they are a lot of work um but it's meaningful and keeps me out of trouble and it's free basically so it's a good activity for me um if you have any suggestions or comments or if you just want to rant and rail against something i said all of that is welcome please email me at fightinganimy at gmail.com. It's just the name of the podcast at gmail.com. Um, and there you can send me like people you think I should talk to, whether you want to talk to me on here, feedback, anything like that. And also, you know, I do this for fun, but I'm also trying to, um, I have a mission. You know, I think that the ideas that I talk about on this podcast are worth thinking about personally. Um, and I'm okay with, with saying that. I think they are worth thinking about. And um, if you find them interesting and worth sharing, please uh, share the podcast link on social media. Just kind of spread it around a little bit. I try not to obsess about the numbers, but of course it's exciting when more people are listening. Um, And with that, 
let's move on to the main segment, which is all about doublethink. So, doublethink. Before I get into everything, I'm just going to give you an overview of how I'm going to tackle this issue. And I'm also going to explain a little bit of where I'm coming from with my perspective, just because I think that can be useful. So what I'm about to say is going to be divided up into several sections. There are three big lies that I'm going to cover first, as you must understand these in order to understand doublethink. There's the lie about lies, the lie about intentions, and the lie about inactions. And then from there, I will move on to inherited ignorance, doublethink as inherited ignorance, and then finally, intending ignorance, doublethink as um, something that you do intentionally. Um, so before we jump into the lie about lies, let me just say that I am someone who is hyper self-aware. I have had experiences, um, I think growing up, that led me to be very critical of my own subjectivity. For example, I, um, when I was a sophomore in high school, I was diagnosed with an eating disorder. And that really taught me not to trust my senses or not to trust my perception of myself in the moment, in the now. Because one day I would look into the mirror and I would think one thing. And then the next day I would look into the mirror and think the opposite, which doesn't make any sense. It's not logically possible. Um, so experiences like that and also I had to think a lot about psychology just from a, an intuitive perspective because I would often get into debates with people and I would notice these patterns when I would be talking to people, usually about religious stuff because um, I, I was kind of allergic in some sense to the religious doctrines that I was immersed in as I was growing up always pushing, contradicting, questioning. And um, I learned a lot about psychology by talking to people. Um, people would say things that would be really interesting. Um, for example, one common thing is that people often think that there's only one believable version of something if they think it's true. Like I was talking to this guy, and I was criticizing um, a certain interpretation of the Bible and faith, and he goes, well, that's not what Christianity says. And I said, oh, I agree with you. I, I don't think that's what it says. And he goes, oh, so you're not really critiquing Christianity then? And I was like, what? no, I, I am. I'm, I'm critiquing certain people's understanding of it. You are only as good of a philosopher as you are a psychologist, in my view. Those things are the same because ideas philosophies are in the mind and the way that the mind works will be inextricably connected to how those ideas are understood and manifest um uh you know and also uh, just another personal experience that odd, weird um autoimmune conditions which are very mysterious and uh somewhat nebulous um, they, they, uh, people in my family, um, say that they have them, and I think that I, 
would qualify as having certain autoimmune conditions. But there's a weird there's a weirdness to it that has really influenced my perspective on life in the sense that certain foods for me will cause certain physical reactions. But when I'm in certain psychic states, for example, um, sorry, parents, like if I'm on drugs <laughs> or if I'm drunk, those and I eat those foods, the typical physical manifestations that they would cause, like, for example, like bloating or um, uh, kind of a, developing a rash or um, things like this, headaches, digestive issues, they won't happen. And I don't know, that's bizarre. Um, and that kind of, I want to study what I want to focus on in my clinical practice eventually is, um, there's different names for them, um, psychosomatic conditions that's seen as kind of derogatory and seen as like, oh, you don't really have this, it's all in your mind. But the thing is that that's a really stupid criticism because the mind is the body. So there's, it's not... Um, it's not condescending to call something psychosomatic. The placebo effect is one of the most consistent findings in all of pharmacology. Are we saying that that's fake? No, people's back pain is healed from the placebo effect all the time, right? Can't discount the power of the mind because the mind is the body. We just don't fully understand the relationship between the two. All of this to say, I've had different diverse experiences that have heightened my cynicism or maybe my um, suspicion or skepticism about experience, about my own understanding of experience, and generally everyone's understanding of their experience. Um, and this has kind of, this has been really formative for how I understand the world. And it's also kind of why I'm really attracted to certain philosophers. I thought I would just kind of give a few notes about my philosophical idols, Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche being the first and foremost. Um, I am a perspectivalist. I think that there is no such thing as reality, that reality is um, a product of the interaction of your mind and your environment, and that when there's no such thing as a capital R reality, because everyone has different perspectives, right? So like which perspective is capital R reality? Well, unless you're God, um, and I don't think that there is a God. I think we can all be God in some sense. Gods, plural, because it's a pluralistic view of life. Um, and, you know, uh, William James, who was the founder of American pragmatism, he was also a perspectivalist, also influenced by Sartre and Kierkegaard, who are both existentialist thinkers. I really like, um, even though I, I kind of detest Kierkegaard's slavish religiousness, I love his irony and his melancholy and his just his humor and his despair. <laughs> I relate to kind of all of that. So um, that's kind of where I'm coming from with this. All of that is um, all of that informs my perspective on double thing. Okay, so the last um, aspect of these in introductory remarks is going to be a quote from 1984 written by the synonymous George Orwell, about doublethink. To know and not to know. To be conscious of complete truthfulness while telling carefully constructed lies. To hold simultaneously two opinions which canceled out. Knowing them to be contradictory and believing in both of them. 
to use logic against logic, to repudiate morality while laying claim to it, to forget whatever was necessary to forget, then to draw it back into memory again at the moment when it was needed, and then to promptly forget it again, and above all, to apply the same process to the process itself. That was the ultimate subtlety, consciously to induce unconsciousness, and then, once again, to become unconscious of the act of hypnosis you had just performed. Even to understand the word doublethink involved the use of doublethink. End quote. That's brilliant. Okay. The lie about lies. The lie about lies is that they are statements intended to conceal or misrepresent known truths. I'm just going to say that again. Uh, I want you to think about when you think about a lie, if this is a, a proper um, definition of what you're thinking about. Statements intended to conceal or misrepresent known truths. Okay. I think that this understanding of the lie, which is pervasive and almost universal when, um, like colloquially, in just everyday life when you meet people, this is the definition that's kind of operating in their mind. I think it's completely indefensible. I think it's totally incoherent. I don't think it makes any sense whatsoever. Here's why. There are white lies, okay? So usually when people talk about lies, they think about lying as bad. It's bad to lie, right? It's good to be honest. Well, then what are white lies? White lies are like the fake good lies. Um, and the fact that we had to carve this category out, these, this category of exceptions to the typical rule, is worth thinking about. Um, a white lie is usually a lie that you, that you say when you have... Um, Good intentions. You want to have a positive impact. So this somehow it's false, but not a lie um, in, a, in the regular sense. It's not a real lie. It's a white lie. It's a fake lie. So that's one reason to be kind of suspicious of the definition. But here's another. Lies of omission. Another category that had to be created to fill all kinds of exceptions. And remember, if lies are statements intended to conceal or misrepresent known truths, how on earth can lies of omission, which are secretive, strategic silences, be lies? Presumably, the opposite of talking is not talking. So whatever the kind of thing that a lie of omission is would be the opposite of the kind of thing that a lie is, because... Lies of omission are silent, and statements are verbalized. So there's another weird inconsistency. But here's another problem um, with the typical definition. Elements outside of the language of the statement modify the meaning of statements. So here's a good example. Wow, what a great idea. What a great idea that is. Right, I'm being sarcastic. I'm saying it's a great idea, but the way, the way that I am saying it indicates that I actually mean the opposite of what I'm saying. Is a tone, is a sarcastic tone a statement? You might say that it's part of a statement, but that's not super clear in the 
typical definition of um, statements intended to conceal mis or misrepresent known truths. Another example is if I roll my eyes. If I say like, oh yeah, thanks for saying that, then I roll my eyes. Um, or if, I'm, if I have like a twitch, you know, uh, life is, uh, communication is like a poker game, you know. Um, they, they give themselves away with tells, right? That's how you know they're lying. Well, how does that work? Um, uh, it, it, this also relates to yet another problem, which is that we often say things that might be quote-unquote technically false, but that we don't intend because we are meaning to conceal or misrepresent known truths. See, the typical understanding of the lie involves a certain intentional content. They are, the content of the intention is, I want to keep this a secret, you know? I want to hide this. I want to misrepresent this for some purpose, right? I want to. It's intentional. So the content of the intention matters. It, if you lie without intending to lie, then you're not lying, right? That's, that doesn't make any sense at that point. Um, so here's a couple examples of what I mean. Um, and these are all examples of cases where we say something not because we intend to convey information, but because we want to have a specific impact on people. So if you get into an argument with someone who you really love, say it's like your boyfriend or girlfriend or significant other or whatever, and you say like, in a, mo in a fit of anger, they, they've just so pissed you off so bad, you're so angry with them, you, you want to hurt them. You want revenge, right? You're not trying to educate or give information. You want them to feel the pain that you feel. Happens all the time. You lash out and you say something that's quote-unquote technically false, like, I never want to see you again, right? If this is someone you really love, that's not really true. Of course you want to see them again, right? But you want them to hurt. So the intentional content of a statement in that context, in that specific context, is not to conceal or misrepresent a known truth at all. It's to inflict pain, right? Here's another example. We often like improvise, concoct these hypotheticals. And hypotheticals, by definition, can't be determined um, as true or false according to the typical understanding of true and false, which, by the way, I don't accept. Like the, the rational idea that we can um, determine things as true or false based on the language of the statement, um, that can't apply to hypotheticals. So, like, because if a hypothetical is like, oh, it could have been like this, well, it's impossible to prove that it couldn't have been, usually, um, especially if the hypothetical is in the future. So here's a good example. Um, if you're in, um, uh, if you are trying to go to Taco Bell, but your friend wants to go to McDonald's, you might say something like, you know what, we should really go to Taco Bell because, you know, the McDonald's might be closed. It's probably closed. You don't probably know. You can't know, maybe, if McDonald's is closed. Let's say you don't know. Why do you say that? Is that a lie? Are you intending to misrepresent a truth? Well, no, but you don't, you don't really believe that McDonald's is probably closed, maybe, um, in this situation. 
you just want to go to Taco Bell. So you're just saying something, almost anything, to get your way. You want to have the impact on the other person of being like, oh, okay, well, fine, I guess we can go to Taco Bell, right? We say things like this all the time. We say things that are intended to impact rather than convey. And the lie, the definition of lie, doesn't really make any sense with that. But, uh, like, when you're playing a game of poker, you are lying. Most people would say that you're lying, even though if you were to ask them what is a lie, they wouldn't have a good way of articulating that, right? Like in poker, you are intentionally misrepresenting a known truth, but oftentimes you're not intentionally doing that. You're distracting from something, right? You're, you're acting a certain way to give off an impression, um, to have an impact on someone. You lie through your behaviors. If you get a new card and then I don't know anything about poker, but say you get a new card and then you get a good hand, whatever that is, um, full house or something, you, when you conceal your excitement, when you conceal your body's movements, you are, what are you doing? Are you lying? You're not saying anything, right? But you're embodying a message. You're communicating something through your behavior. Um, so, the understanding of lies as statements intended to conceal or misrepresent known truths, it doesn't include, or it doesn't, um, it doesn't make sense of white lies, lies of omission, the fact that elements outside of the statement can modify the meaning of the statement in a way that most people would understand as being honest or dishonest. So there's a disconnect between the definition and the practical interpretation. And then also the fact that you can embody lies. None of this is explained or made sense of by the traditional definition. There is a, one of my favorite Marshall, <laughs> people always are like, oh, Marshall, Marshall Mathers. <laughs> and it's like, yes, thanks. Uh, Eminem's cool, but I think Marshall McLuhan, the famous, um, in his day, um, influential communication theorist who said that the medium is the message. I think he's a cooler Marshall. Um, the medium is the message. What does that mean? It means that the way something is communicated, the context of the communication is inextricably linked to the meaning of a communication. Remember, if I say something like this, wow, that's a, that's a really good idea. Versus if I say it like this, wow, that's a, that's a really good idea. <laughs> or something like that. That was, that was cringe, but you get the idea. Um, the way, the medium in which something is communicated matters for understanding the meaning of the communication. They're inextricably linked. And um, what is the medium and the message in the example where you get a card and you have a full house and then you try to restrict your movements so as not to appear excited and give away? that you have a good hand to the other players. Um, the body 
is the medium. And the message is something that is communicated through the body, through the medium of the body. The body is the way that it is communicated. And by the way, it's interesting when people talk about Jesus being the way. What is the medium with that sidebar on that? Anyways, um, the way that a message is communicated is is inextricably linked to its meaning. And if that's true, then statements can't be the unit of analysis, right? So the intended to conceal or misrepresent known truths part of the definition is kind of blown up by all of these categories of exception, white lies, lies of omission, and then the fact that um, there are things outside of the statement that modify the meaning of the statement. But the statements part of the definition is also problematic because we are constantly communicating through our behavior, whether or not our behaviors are verbal or nonverbal. So how is that? How can you lie nonverbally, right? All of these questions, I think, are totally, um, they can't be solved by any defense of the typical definition. And instead, I think we have to have a new definition. And this is the truth about lies. You know, the lie about lies is that they are statements intended to misrepresent or conceal known truths. And the truths, the truth about lies is that lies are actions. Because only actions, and by the way, actions are descriptions of behavior in context. Actions are objects of analysis that are capable of integrating and do integrate medium and message. When I describe an action you performed, I say, you pretended to be bored with your new card, right? Implied by that is for some goal, right? So actions often implicitly specify a goal or indicate at least a goal orientation of behavior. And that's the medium. We are constantly doing things through our bodies um, to accomplish some goal. But statements, statements are like abstract words in a vacuum, in a void, in like an abstract space. And it's like, oh, is this thing that is universal that anyone can say? Is it true or false? That's not life. We don't live in a vacuum, right? We talk to people. We live in a social environment. That's where it matters. So lies, you have to bring it down to the actual world we live in, the life that we lead, and go, well, well what does it mean to lie not in an abstract vacuum space of abstraction of whether things can be like, oh, that's rationally true, or logic says that's false, which is incoherent, by the way, um, uh, versus... Um, versus well, what are you doing? And what are, what are the implications for me now? So the truth about lies is that they are actions that indicate something to yourself or others that conflict with your overarching goals for your life. Lies are performed. And people don't like it when I say this. <laughs> they, don't, they don't like it because they, they go, oh, so we can just change our goals so then we change the truth? Yes, right? But a couple of notes on that. First, it's hard to change your goals. Like, in the moment, you can be like, oh, you know what, I really want to play video games, so this is the thing I should do. I should do it. Uh, and then after you play video games, you realize, you know what, 
that really wasn't smart because I had all these other things that were of higher priority, right? So you can trick yourself in the moment, maybe, and you know that's I'll explain what it means to trick yourself. Um, but that doesn't mean that your goals have changed. So that's one note. And another note is usually if you have this instinctive reaction of like, well, there must be truth. There must be a thing in the world that exists that is truth that can be touched somehow. It's an object. Um, it's not a subjective property, but it's something that exists tangibly, truth, like where, but somewhere, somewhere, if that's what you believe, I think that you, to be really blunt with you, I think that you're clinging on to that idea for a very understandable reason, which is that you want to trust other people. Like, think about it. What are the implications to you if there is no such thing as this truth that exists? It means there's so much uncertainty and ambiguity in the world, right? And it means that you can't be confident that other people are persuadable to your view. Unfortunately, that's life. I think that's often true. Um, and truth socially, um, like things that you walk up to someone and you go, hey, is this true? And they go, yeah, that's true. So a social truth, something that has, that has some agreement, that's cultural consensus. And usually, actually 100% of the time, sorry, 100% of the time, that derives from shared goals. If two people are trying to run to the library and one person takes a left and one other person takes a right and they both get to the library and then they compare their pedometer results like or like the distance that they ran and one person goes, oh, uh, I took the longer route. I got more exercise. Look, here's my phone that shows that I ran two miles. And the other person's like, oh, wow, I only ran one mile. And the person who said that they ran two miles, they go, it's better to take the way that I went. It's better to go the way that I went. Is that true? It is only true if you want more exercise. So the other person would be like, wow, that is true. I should take a right next time, right? That's true. That I should change my behavior to, to represent this new understanding, this new perspective of the world. My world has been changed by these facts. Um, the truth of that is contingent upon your goal. If the other guy is like, you know what, I actually want the least bit of exercise, well, then it's not true that he should take the, the way that the other person went. Truth is a, is a description of something's relationship to your goals. Um, I could go on forever about that, but let's move on. So that's the first truth, or the first lie. The lie about lies, and the truth being that lies are um, indications that conflict with your goals. They are not statements intended to conceal or misrepresent known truths. All right, let's move on to the next big lie. Okay, the next big lie is the lie about intentions. This one is just as important. The lie about intentions is that behaviors performed without self-consciousness in the moment cannot be intentional. Let me unpack that. The best way to, to communicate what I'm trying to say is to bring up crimes of passion, which is a bullshit category. Does it make any sense? 
It's stupid and it shouldn't be in the law. But crimes of passion are this idea that your quote-unquote passion, your quote-unquote emotion can overwhelm your reason. This does not stand up to scrutiny. And let me just give you a very concrete example of why it doesn't. Have you ever intentionally cultivated a habit? I bet you have. I have many times. I'm trying to do that now. Intentionally cultivating habits, that's just another way of saying disciplining yourself. Um, For a while, I brought this up in the episode with Kevin. I think it's just a good simple example. Uh, my dad would get upset with me because I wouldn't turn off the lights. This was when I was in like, let's see, junior high or something like that. I wouldn't turn off lights. I don't know. I just didn't think about it. Uh, but that's wasteful, you know, like spending electricity. I really like light. I feel better when things are well lit. Uh, not when they're in fluorescent lights, but I love natural light. I love soft light. And I don't know, it just gives me more energy. But, but if you're leaving a room, you can turn the light off. So I had to be conscious of the fact uh, that I'm not turning the light off, and I had to intentionally develop the behavior of turning the lights off. And eventually, with enough repetition, with enough practice, the behavior became automatized, became automatic. I automatized it to become automatic. Automatic here means that I performed the behavior without self-consciously attending to it, without focusing on it. I can be lost in thought while doing it. That's what it means when it's automatic. But here's the huge question. What motivates my automatic performance of a behavior that I have intentionally automatized? Right? This is something that I have planned to do. I have... Uh, you know, created a system where I'm going to be like, okay, I'm going to put a post-it note on the light and that will help me develop the um, automatized habit of turning the light off, right? But when I do that, if I'm lost in thought, I'm thinking about what I'm going to eat later and I turn off the light, what motivates me to turn off the light? Reason or emotion? If reason and emotion are the drivers for things that we do, you know, crimes of passion being supposedly driven by passion and not reason, what motivates the unconscious or unselfconscious, I prefer the term unselfconscious to unconscious for a number of reasons, um, performance of a habit, an automatized behavior. If it's emotion, then you are emoting without feeling anything, right? Because you're not even aware that you're doing it. It's kind of like when you're lost in thought while driving and you zone out. Is emotion guiding you? Well, you're not feeling anything. You're likely feeling something in relationship to whatever you're thinking about. If you're thinking about something in the first place, if you're thinking about, do I want to go to Taco Bell or McDonald's and I actually did for the first time have Taco Bell the other day, and it was amazing. Uh, If you're thinking about Taco Bell and you're like, ooh, Taco Bell's so good, well, then if you are feeling anything in that moment at all, it's not related to the light. 
So most people would say that emotion that isn't remotely felt in any way is not emotional. Okay, so what about reason? Is reason motivating turning off the light? Well, if you're not even remotely thinking about the light when you turn it off, how can you be reasoning about it? Reasoning here would be unselfconscious. You would be below the level of awareness in the moment. Is that reasonable? I think most people would say, no, that's not reasonable. It's not reasonable to not think about it at all. <laughs> it's not reasonable to not think about something. That's the opposite of reason. That's the opposite of rationality, the application of reason, right? Uh, so if it's not reason and it's not emotion, and think of so much of what we do in life works like this. So much of what we do is automatic like this right? You get lost in things all the time. If you didn't, you would be consuming way too many calories. Because when you get lost in something, it takes work to think about your thoughts, right? That's a kind of an exercise to question yourself, to interrogate yourself. That's hard work. That's mentally draining. So you need to get lost in things um, to, to get into the flow state or um, to, to automatize things so that you're not constantly thinking about everything, because that would be exhausting. Imagine if nothing was automatic and, uh, oh, getting out of the shower, you had to think about, well, where am I going to step? Where am I going to step now? Uh, where am I going to step now? Or getting into the car, um, let me think, should I, I should turn, let me flip the turn signal, and then, and then I'll start to turn. You know, as if you've just, as though you're just starting driving for the first time. That's not how you live your life. The vast majority of your life is lived automatically, right? So the vast majority of your life is driven by something that can't be accounted for by the, the colloquial, the traditional mainstream understandings of reason and emotion. So what's up with that, right? Well, in my view, and I think this is true, and I can defend this, the labels rational and emotional are moral judgments. They are not different ways of being. Think about the context that people usually say that something is emotional or something is rational. Usually what they intend to convey, the impact that they want to have, is something like, that doesn't make sense, right? That's just emotional. Facts don't care about your feelings. <laughs> that's, a, that's an unreasonable argument. What does that mean? That means it doesn't make sense to me. That's all it means. There is no thing that exists called rationality in the world. Where is it? It's nowhere, right? There is no thing called reason. People reason differently. What's up with that, right? People have different perspectives on things. They have different ways of reaching conclusions. They have different... Some people, for example, they tend to be more moved by by anecdotes and stories. And some people are like, give me the hard data. You know, Kevin would definitely be like, give me the data or it doesn't exist, right? Maybe, I shouldn't put words in his mouth, but that's certainly the impression that he gives off uh, from the last episode. And, and that's awesome. You know, we need both kinds of people. We need people like that. Think about all the things that wouldn't get done if certain kinds of people didn't exist. There are so many personality types that I have a really hard time uh, interacting with, 
But I'm so thankful for that people like that exist because they serve a very important social function, right? But the idea that there is this one thing, this God perspective called reason, that there is a right way to reason, that would be presumably the holy, divine way to reason, right? That's a moral perspective that you have. You go, this is how we should reason. And if you're not reasoning the way that I think you should, then you're being this thing called emotional, which is just a proxy for unreasonable. You're not thinking like how you should. That's all it means. These aren't substantively different kinds of thought, right? And because a lot of the things that you would do, like a quote-unquote crime of passion, which I just hate that. I hate that. People get, they, they, they don't bear the responsibility of their domestic violence or whatever it is that they're doing. It's usually domestic violence, right? These are men who commit horrible atrocities um, against their wives. They brutalize them. And then they're like, oh, emotion overcame me. You're not even saying anything, right? Take responsibility for it. That's my view. Um, right, okay. <laughs> got, got kind of intense there, but I, I care deeply about this. Um, instead, I propose that the different kinds of thought at the most fundamental level, or here's a way of thinking about it, self-conscious thoughts and unselfconscious thoughts. Self-conscious thoughts in the technical jargon would be called metacognitive. They would be the exercise of metacognition, and they are thoughts about thoughts. When you are thinking about your thoughts, if you're going, oh, why did I do that, right? The thought of the behavior that you did, you're going, why, why did I do that, right? You're not, when you're thinking about, when you're laying in bed regretting the stupid thing you said in class because you got you got intense and then you said something that is deeply embarrassing and everyone picked up on it and the teacher tried to cover for you. Just say maybe that's something that you could be thinking about. Um, you're not actually thinking about what, you're not actually thinking about something that's not a thought, right? Everything that you're thinking is a thought. So you're thinking, well, why did I do that? And do that is a thought that you have, the thought of doing it. Everything is the thought of, right? So when you're in your head, so to speak, you're self-conscious, you are thinking about thoughts. You are in a metacognitive state. When you're planning, when you're going, well, should I do this or should I do that? And why should I do that? And blah, blah, blah. You're thinking about thoughts. And all the other times, you're not thinking about thoughts. And you're unselfconscious. Um, and intentional behaviors are things that we plan metacognitively, things that we plan self-consciously, metacognitively and self-consciously mean the same thing, exact same thing here, um, in this context. Um, you plan something, then you necessarily, in order to perform what it is that you have decided to do, like say you, you pick a plan, you go... Uh, should I go to Taco Bell or McDonald's? And you think like, well, I had a McDonald's yesterday and the ice cream machine wasn't working and I want a milkshake, but Taco Bell doesn't even have ice cream, but they have those delicious donut things. God, those things are so good. Uh, so you go, you know what? I want those donut things, those delicious cream filled heavenly things. 
I'm going to go to Taco Bell, right? So you're thinking about the plan, and then you go, I'm going to do it. You decide. You intend. You believe that you should do it. Those are, these are all the same. These are all the same. You're going to act out this plan that you have decided on, believed in, chosen. In order for you to do that, your thoughts must be consumed by things other than thought. Your, which, another way of putting that is your attention must shift from thoughts in your head. You must get out of your head to things in the world and the environment. And things in the environment include your body, right? This is, I'm not saying that your body is distinct from your mind. When you decide to go to Taco Bell, your attention will shift to things that could include your body. You might go, oh my gosh, look at my feet. My feet do not have any shoes on. You are attending to your feet. Your thought is consumed by your feet. And you go, I gotta put my shoes on. And, and then you look at the shoes, and then you look at the door, and then you look at your keys, and then you look out the window of your car at the road. You know what I mean? Like your thoughts, your attention becomes consumed by things other than thoughts. Every time that you act intentionally, every time that you enact an intention, your thought must be consumed by objects in the environment that are necessary to uh, whose manipulation is necessary for you to accomplish whatever it is that you set out to do that's how it works there is no reason and emotion there is you doing things that you hopefully have thought through in advance and if you haven't thought through them maybe you'll have a great experience hopefully but the lie about intentions is that is that things that you do in life can't be intentional if you didn't, what? If you didn't somehow plan them as you're doing them, which is impossible. You can't simultaneously be in your head in the, the way that I'm into earlier, thinking about thoughts and not in your head, thinking about things other than thoughts. That's impossible. If you're thinking about thoughts, then you're thinking about thoughts, right? That's, and that's why, and, and your body might be performing these automatized behaviors um, while you're thinking about the thoughts, but your attention is on the thoughts if you're thinking about thoughts. Um, most of the time, in my view, when people say that something isn't reasonable, what they mean is, is if you were to self-consciously interrogate this idea for long enough, your idea that it was valid would change that doesn't mean that it's that it flies in the face of some kind of mind independent standard some kind of rationality that exists outside of us some kind of truth standard that exists outside of us where is it um, there's no evidence that there is such a thing that exists outside of us in my view um no evidence as i understand evidence <laughs> Or it doesn't make sense to me. That's all I'm saying, right? Totally disagree with me. Feel free, right? All I'm saying is it doesn't make sense to me. And I can give you thoughts that you can think that I think, if you think them, you will think differently about the idea. <laughs> That's all I mean, right? There is no, oh, according to this 
it's like certainly wrong, right? No, there is no big daddy truth who's going to come in and solve your conflicts for you. There is no college administrator who's going to be like, oh, actually, you should do this. You know, like, there's nothing like that. There is no hall monitor who's going to like lay down the rules in life when it comes to knowledge. There's nothing like that. There's just you figuring it out with your thoughts. And hopefully your thoughts work for you uh, better over time. Hopefully they help you accomplish your goals. So the second big truth is that your, your behavior can be intentional if it's traced to self-conscious thought, right? How you can, I, I mean, I take this pretty far. I think that you can act out an intention for years without, uh, without stopping, right? If I still habitually turn lights off, my intention when I was in junior high has, I have been enacting it for over a decade. Think about raising the scales with that, right? Things that are more significant than that. A lot of things in life, we started with an intention and then the, our, enactment, our enactment of those things that we intended to do ceases to become pragmatic for us because our contexts change. You know, if you're constantly, if, if you develop the habit of constantly calling someone a retard, and I think the word retard is hilarious, uh, and I say it, and I, I hate that it's become taboo. It doesn't, doesn't mean what people think that it, what the, the people who intentionally misunderstand it <laughs> say, right? Um, but it's obviously not something you want to go around saying because people will look at you funny. And if you want to be taken seriously um, in public, uh, you probably don't want to go around throwing that word around, right? But if you get into the habit of just throwing the word around, and then, and it's funny, say, in high school or whatever, like it was in my day, uh, if you get into the habit of saying that, and then you go to college, and you go to like a liberal arts college or something, and you continue the automatized habit, people are gonna, it's gonna cause you trouble. And usually what will happen is you'll be like, oh, this thing is causing me trouble, I should change it. Usually we only have the idea, I would say almost always, the idea, uh, unless, unless we are uniquely, um, I would say, self-cynical, uh, usually we don't change our ideas about things unless we run into a problem, right? And often that problem is just with other people. And you go, wow, this isn't working anymore. I should change it. You become self-conscious that you're doing it. Most of the time, you're not even self-conscious that you're doing it until someone's like, hey, don't say that anymore. That's bad now. We, there's this other term now that's way better, and, and even though next year that will be the new retard, it's just an immoral atrocity that you would say this thing, that even though the thing that I'm saying now will become that thing next year. I'm, I have the moral high ground. I'm morally superior than you. I'm the word police. You should listen to me. Uh, unfortunately, people like that have too much power today, and they'll cause you trouble. Um, and so, so you will change. You will change your intention, the intention that you had years ago. Um, that's how it works. Okay. This was the second lie, and I'm going somewhere with this, by the way. I know maybe that it seems like the lie about lies and the lie about intentions. 
that these are, it's like, what could this have to do with DoubleThink? But I'll get there. And I think that I will, I, in my view, I, I, I tie it in quite nicely. So let's move on to the third lie. The third lie. The third lie is the lie about inactions. And this lie is pretty simple. And I think this is going to be the shortest truth uh, exposure. <laughs> um, the lie about inactions is that they exist, right? The idea that you can have failed to do something. There's something deeply incoherent about it. Because you are always doing something. Always. It's impossible to be doing nothing unless you're dead. Even when you're asleep, you're sleeping, right? The failure, quote-unquote, the failure to do something is not the absence of action A, but the presence of action B. Um, this is important because there is a deep... Um, there's a delusion. It's very common. I fall into it all the time. I think, I think almost everyone does. And the delusion is that you can intend an absence. You can go, I'm going to do something that is a not thing. That's impossible, because you can only do things. Um, in my blog post, I compare this to the category of holes, and I think this is useful. When we talk about a hole, there's a whole fascinating metaphysical uh, literature and uh, philosophical literature about whether holes exist or in what sense do holes exist. And, um, people would, might go like, well, what a waste of time. What a waste of time to think about that. And it's like, well, yeah, it's a waste of time if you don't think about transferability, right? If you don't see the pattern in other areas of life, right? If you're not working at that, well, then it'll be a waste of time, um, perhaps. Although, again, it depends on your goals, what's a waste or not. But a lot of things that people think are useless, they just lack the imagination to consider how they can be transferred to other things, right? I think that's a beautiful part of life. Um, you know, so many things you see pop up in different areas of life, different domains. Um, that's really cool. That's a cool thing. Um, anyways, getting back to holes. So think about a donut, like just your a normal, delicious, crispy cream cake donut, like one of those ones that aren't covered in glaze but are super doughy. They have a hole in them, right? There's the hole in the middle of the donut, right? Holes don't exist, I argue, in, some, in, in the same way that the donut exists. Holes are, okay, get ready for this. I'm, I'm going to unpack it. <laughs> Holes are hypotheticals drawn from observations of contrasts. Okay, let's unpack that. A hypothetical is something that could be. An observation is a uh, perception. And a contrast is a, um, <clears throat> is, a, is a dichotomy that you see in the world or a difference that you perceive. Um, when we look at the donut and we say there is a hole in the donut, what we mean is there is a space that is not filled 
with donut. That could be filled with donut. Do you see the hypothetical and the observation and the contrast in that statement? We are observing that there is a difference between the substance of one, one um, area of space and the substance of another area, and we are saying, we're pointing out that difference. And we're saying, huh, there's, there's a space that could be filled. Could be, hypothetically. When we say that someone didn't do something, or we say that they failed to act, or something like that, where they usually, yeah, failed to act is the best way to, to, to verbalize, and like a, to actually make it into a verb. Um, enacting, right? Enacting isn't really a, a word that people use, but you can think about failing to act. What we mean is that person could have done something, but instead they did something else. And the point here is about priority. The point is that we are always prioritizing the activity that we are performing. To perform an activity is to prioritize it. That's what it means. And who you are, your character, is your priority set. And it's not what you think your priorities are. It's how you, it's what priorities you live out. It's what priorities you are. It's your being in the world. That's your priorities. That those are the variables that we call you, that I call you, you call you. Uh, hopefully you call you. You can mean many things when you're calling yourself you. Probably shouldn't use that example. But when I talk about you, I am referring to my idea of the priority set that constitutes you. Um, and so if I say something like, um, Pam, Pam's my dog, Pam could have... Or, uh, Pam failed to eat the donut. Pam failed to eat the donut. What do I mean? I mean, Pam could have eaten the donut, but, here's the contrast, did not eat the donut. She prioritized being a good dog and not eating the donut. In real life, she would totally eat the donut. Um, <clears throat> so, in the same way that holes are abstracted, abstracted meaning they are mentally concocted, or mentally perceived because of the categories that we are seeing through. The, the donut hole example is a, an observation of contrast in, in object space, like donutlessness versus donutness, or potential donutness is the better way to think about it. Donutlessness versus potential donutness. There could be donut in the hole. Potentially, hypothetically, but there's not. So we see the contrast. And inactions are abstracted from observations of contrast in behavior time. In the past, you did this. But in the past, I think, you could have potentially done this other thing. The takeaway is that is the prioritization point. You're always prioritizing something. And I think that once you get this truth, once you understand that there's no such thing as an inaction in the world, 
Inaction is only a thought in your head, because inactions have already not happened, or haven't yet happened, right? By definition. So they're not actually performed in the world. They're not making the world. They're not impacting the world. Whatever the opportunity cost of the inaction, the, the specified action that failed to be performed, whatever the other thing that was performed in its stead as an alternative, that's the thing actually impacting the world, making the world, having an impact, right? If you just sit on your couch and you think about all the things you could do, you're just sitting on a couch. You're not doing anything other than sitting on a couch and thinking, which can be really useful, by the way. I have no problem with sitting on a couch and thinking. I'm recording a podcast right now <laughs> of ideas that I... Uh, well, actually, I, I don't sit in a couch and think. Uh, I walk and think. I think walking is really good for thought. But anyways, um, by the way, a great movie, one of my favorite movies of all time, um, that really explores this theme of inaction is called A Serious Man. Man. It's called A Serious Man. <laughs> uh, and it's by the Coen brothers. It's a very Jewish movie in every sense. Uh, and it's awesome. It's all about how he, the, the, the protagonist, is not doing things that he should do uh, with his marriage, with his job, with his kids. Uh, and he thinks that he's a victim of life. He's like, oh, all these things keep happening. And it really does seem like that. Like, they do a really good job in the movie of presenting the things that he's coming up against as like, Wow, this is just happening. But the point is that, that things don't, don't, don't just happen, right? If you, if you, um, you, you know, uh, there's, I have a poster uh, of one of Jordan Peterson's rules, which might be cringe to certain people, but I find this rule, this is, this rule is, is so important for life. I, be, I really believe it is. And I have a hard time remembering it because I'm avoidant. I tend to avoid conflict which is to say that I prioritize other things, right? <laughs> and the rule is um, don't leave things in the fog, right? That's something I really try to take seriously with the people I care about in my life, and it's really hard, right? Don't leave things in the fog. If someone does something that really aggravates you or it annoys, even if it annoys you a little bit, but they do it again and again, and you don't say anything the first time or the second time, and, well, by the fifth time, you've already set the expectation that it's okay, so now it's an even bigger deal to bring it up. In the fog, the lie becomes a big monster. It's just like this... Um, I, I used to watch VeggieTales when I was a kid, and I remember there was this episode of... I'm forgetting what it was... Larry Boy or something? He was like a pickle or a cucumber who was a superhero who had plungers it really <laughs> looking back that that was weird um but yeah he was like a pickle with a plunger superhero power or something anyways he was like telling lies and then his lies turned into a giant monster and it was like taking over the city and in order to overcome the monster he had to tell the truth obviously i disagree with the implicit Christian definition of truth forwarded by that show. But in your own life, if you do things that are contrary to your goals without being self conscious that you're doing it, later in life, it's going to feel like things are crumbling all around you. Right? 
if if something's a little bit annoying at work, just a little bit annoying, and then it keeps happening, and maybe it gets a little bit bigger, and you're like, oh, well, that's annoying, but, you know, I've put up with it before. You just keep putting up with it. Eventually, you're going to reach a breaking point. Um, or you're going to die. Sad. <laughs> Take your pick. Um, the better thing to do is to address the problem, quit your job or whatever it is, so that you, uh, so that you can accomplish your goals, right? If something is bothering you, implicit in the bothering is the fact that one of your goals is to overcome it. If it's bothering you, it's disrupting you in some way that is worth paying attention to. Um, I mean, it depends on what you mean by bothering. Like one of my favorite examples is working out. Not a, there's not enough philosophers refer to the analogy of working out. Maybe it's because they don't work out. Um, but when you're working out, there's this weird, totally mysterious, liminal space between the burn, between like, yeah, this pump and iron, the burn, or whatever. Uh, that was a very masculine expression of the burn. Um, versus, whoa, I need to stop. I'm going to hurt myself. And it's not always clear where that line is. And, and, like, and it's impossible to communicate that line. It's impossible. It's just as impossible as talking, as comparing pain tolerances, which is a total bullshit concept, <laughs> right? Because you can't be in someone's mind, you don't, and because pain is an experience, you don't know how much pain they're in. And just because something causes you, just because it doesn't seem like it causes you a lot of pain, and you go, oh, well, they say it hurts a lot, so therefore their pain tolerance must be low. You don't fucking know. <laughs> how could you know? Maybe it just hurts them more for some reason that you don't know. How could you possibly know that? You can't. That thing is a, such a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> um, but the, the thing about inactions is um, here is an important implication here. In the piece, I say that inaction is to praxeology as ignorance is to epistemology. That's a very jargon-heavy sentence, but I'm proud of it. Um, praxeology is, is related to um, your practical behavior in life and the, the study of it or the systematization, systemization of it, right? I'm trying to act a certain way, trying to perform certain practices, um, so inaction is to praxeology, inaction, inaction is to behavior, inaction is to uh, action, as ignorance is to knowledge, right? How can you, you can't ever know what you don't know you don't know about. You, you're always ignorant of your ignorance, if it's really ignorance, right? If you know, if you go, I'm aware of this gap in my knowledge, you're not being ignorant of that gap. You're, you're totally paying attention to it, right? If you go like, wow, I, I really don't know anything about... What's something I don't know anything about? I barely know anything about evolution. Um, the, Kevin and I had a whole conversation about that. I, I almost put it in the last podcast, but that is way more complicated than... like is typically represented. Um, you know, of course, there's a lot of evidence for 
macro and microevolution, but in terms of what it is, how it works, that's complicated, man. And there's a lot of levels to it. There's a, a book that he recommended that I want to read about gene um, conflict within an individual. Like, genes aren't at the level of the individual. The individual can have competing genes. And uh, I think this is, I'm entering into wild speculation here, but I think that um, habit conflicts, so like addictions, this would be, addiction would be a uh, automatized habit that is disrupting your ability to accomplish your goals. There is no specific thing that is essentially an addiction. I am an anti-essentialist. There is no thing that it that must be an addiction, but things can be addictions for you. I struggle. I get I develop habits and therefore addictions quite quickly. I don't know what it is about me, but I can do that quite quickly and that can be very dangerous for me. Um but uh but where was I going with all that? Um Oh yeah. Uh, but there can be inter-individual, intra-individual genetic conflict. Um, that's fascinating to think about. And how does that play into the into evolution? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know at all. Um, but I am aware that I don't know of it. I'm not ignorant, right? I'm not ignoring what I don't know. I'm focusing on it. That's the difference. Um, so when we talk about ignorance, people often have this idea that there is a presence of an absence. I'm going to explore this more in the next section, where we will finally get to doublethink and how these things relate to doublethink. All right, we're moving on from the three lies, and we are going to talk about doublethink, which uh, a, a short way to think about doublethink is inherited ignorance. And we're going to talk about what that means. But first, let's talk a little bit more about ignorance. We left the last section talking about the presence of an absence. People think that if you are ignorant of something, there exists something, there exists a gap, right? The problem is that for you, it doesn't exist. And because I'm a perspectivalist, I think that things exist. The existence of things is in your mind, right? There is the world outside of your mind, of course. Of course. But when we say, and that's the key point there, when we say what we know to exist, what we say exists, what we know to exist, what we believe to exist, what we can imagine to exist, that is all in our heads. There's no way around that. So, if you walk up to someone who is ignorant of something, they don't know that it's something. Right? That's what it means to be ignorant of it. They don't know it exists. And uh, that's what it is. And you say, like, there is the presence of a lack of knowledge that you have. That doesn't really make any sense, does it? You're saying there's the presence of an absence. What you're saying is going back to the observations of contrasts, 
But if they don't observe the contrast, what you're saying won't make any sense to them. And it will, and the same would apply to me too. If you walk up to me and you say, hey, you're ignorant of this thing that I know to be real. I would be like, okay, well, what is it? And then if you were to tell me something that I really was being ignorant about, I would learn about the existence of something that didn't previously exist. When I say that you would learn about the existence of something that didn't previously exist, you can hear you can learn about the existence of something that didn't previously exist to you. You can hear that extra to you, but I really mean it in the first way because I think those things are the same. To me, my world, your world, your life, your world, everything that you think exists, that is based on your knowledge. And really, something doesn't exist in the most real way if you are ignorant of it. Kevin would say that that's solipsistic. People might say that's solipsistic, solipsism being the idea that there is no mind-independent reality. And I don't think there is. I think that, because, like, what is real? What is real is what is real to you. What other senses there are real to you? The, it's like saying, if I didn't exist, um, I would think this. It's like, well, no, you don't exist. So there's nothing real to think at all, because you don't exist. So I really see that as part of the human condition, is... All of existence is what we know to exist, and we learn through our interactions with the mind-independent something, the mind-independent what's out there. I don't know what to call it, because it's not reality, it's life, I guess, the environment. Returning to the focus here, um, so ignorance can't be a gap that exists in your knowledge for you to be ignorant it, there can't be the presence of an absence because that's a contradiction that's impossible that's like saying a square circle that's not a thing you're breaking the rules of words you're being incoherent if you were to say there is the presence of an absence you might as well just being like be saying like blah 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 right because it doesn't make any sense and things that don't make any sense are meaningless sounds. So you might as well just be saying blah, 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 blah. There's no difference. There's no functional, practical difference. So there's no difference. Um, so what do I mean by ignorance? I've basically just said that ignorance is impossible. But earlier I said that double-think is inherited ignorance. So what is ignorance, really? I hinted at it when I, when I talked about ignoring. Ig you ignore, you make things absent. So um, when we say that we're ignorant of something, what we mean is that we aren't prioritizing it in attention. We're not considering it. We're not paying attention to it because instead we're paying attention to something else. Just like with the action of you're always doing something, you're always knowing something. You're always paying attention to something. Um, always focusing on something. 
And so if I say that you're being ignorant of something, what do I mean? What I mean is you're paying attention to the wrong thing. So doublethink, here's a definition. Doublethink is a habit comprised of behaviors that ignore contradictions and dogma whose continued existence entails the continued sacrifice of individuality and whose logical reconciliation entails a dramatic loss of comfort and security. Let me read that again, because I am reading it, because I, I don't have this memorized, but it's, a, it's an important definition. Doublethink is a habit comprised of behaviors that ignore contradictions and dogma, whose continued existence entails the continued sacrifice of individuality, and whose logical reconciliation entails a dramatic loss of comfort and security. Let's unpack that a little bit. So a habit comprised of behaviors, all habits are comprised of behaviors, and the behaviors are what ignore contradictions, because ignore is a verb. You ignore things. That's an action. That's a behavior. Uh, well, behavior, the difference between action and behavior is that actions are intentional, whereas behaviors might not be intentional. I don't want to get into the difference between that because I tend to think that that there's not... Um, that everything that you do should be regarded as an action. You should take responsibility for everything. Um, but that's not important for right now. Uh, behaviors that ignore contradictions and dogma. So contradictions and dogma, these would be flaws. These would be doubts. Doubts is what they are. These would be ideas that there are problems in dogma, in doctrine, in the official way to think about things. If you go... I don't think the official way to think about things makes much sense. Well, that's a contradiction in dogma. So doublethink is a habit of ignoring such things. Um, and I add this point on. It, it's not necessary to specify because it's implied, but I make it explicit just in case. Um, the contradictions in dogma, um, if you are a dogmatist, um, continuing to ignore a contradiction in dogma is to continue to sacrifice your individuality, right? Every time something bothers you, something disrupts your goals, and you go, what? You go, you know what? I'm going to pretend like that's not bothering me. You're sacrificing yourself. You're, you're, you're pretending like your goals aren't your goals. So that's the loss of individuality. And the last part is, and whose logical... Reconciliation, who is being the contradictions. If the contradictions, logical reconciliation entails a dramatic loss of comfort and security. When I say logical, and really I believe most of the time when people say logical, I just mean related to thought. Right? Something is logical if it makes sense to you, to your thoughts. Uh, logical in other contexts can mean technical logic. That means making sense according to a specified formal rule set. And when you say that something is logical, you mean that is in accordance with the assumptions undergirding um, a particular formalized language, right? But in everyday life, that's not what people are referring to. Because, like, what would be the formalized logic? It's, imp it's just unconscious at that point. It's, it's something that they take for granted. There we go. It's unselfconscious. They've just taken for granted 
uh, with these axioms. Uh, according to, like, things must be logical in accordance with something, right? There's not a thing called logic that exists apart from us. If everyone died, there'd be no logic. Where would it be? Where? That's the th question you have to ask. Where? Where is this mind-independent logic, this mind-independent truth, this mind-independent rationality, right? Really, the only... I don't think this is a good answer, but... Really, the only answer is that it exists in God or as God, right? When people say that God exists, most of the time what they mean is that a mind-independent standard, a big daddy, huh, big daddy principles, big daddy punisher exists to, to adjudicate human affairs. Um, but where is this logic? I can't find it. If it, if I fall asleep, I I don't I don't know of any logic, right? Logic is thought. So logical reconciliation. This just means if you were to face the doubt and really work through it, you would be uncomfortable and you would be insecure because that's learning. That's a form of learning. Analyzing thought is a kind, of, a kind of investigation, right? When you have a doubt about something, and this, at this point it can be anything. I'm not just talking about dogma. If you have a doubt about something and you look away from it, and look here doesn't, of course, it relates to your mind's eye, your third eye. And I'm not trying to get mystical on you. It's just a useful concept. You look away with your mind's eye, your attention uh, from it. You go like, oh, I don't want to look at that. I don't want to pay attention to that. Um, you are missing out on possibilities that are created when you, uh, when you approach a thought with curiosity. You really think about the thought. You think it through. Right? Um, I really detest... Uh, the idea that um, we should instinctually repress doubts. Um, I think that, and, and to be fair, a lot of, uh, like, I, the context that comes to mind for me just because of my history is like the religious context where doubt is a major theme. You know, believers will say that they struggle with doubt. That doesn't make any sense struggle with it, work through it, <laughs> face it. If you're struggling with doubt, that means you're just continuously ignoring it. And it's going to come up again, right? Because you keep doing the same things, you keep going to the same environments. So it's not like, it's not like things are going to change in terms of what pops into your head unless you disrupt your behavior radically. So if, you, if you're struggling with doubt probably means there's a problem, right? And, it, and I think a lot of people have a fatalistic attitude where they're like, oh, if, like if I have a doubt about my relationship with my significant other, that necessarily means that we're doomed. It's like, no. You're actually probably more doomed if you don't work through the doubt. If you keep leaving things in the fog, that's going to be your downfall, right? If, if, you, if you view doubt as something that you're struggling against, 
rather than working through, you're probably going to be way more susceptible to another kind of religion, right? Whether that's a real religion or whether it's a political religion. Oh my God, so many people's religion is politics now. Their source of truth is uh, a political idea, right? And then they're like, oh, that's... uh, Well, today it's not even really politics. It's just about like racism or something. Um, That's racist, so it's false. It's like, okay. Anyways, um, God, I gotta get, I gotta be more focused with this. Okay. Anyways, doublethink is a is a uh, a habit. Okay, and I gotta talk about habits for a second. Habits don't exist. Again, I love saying that things don't exist, but habits are names. Right, they're just names. Does the does the name clock exist? Actual clocks exist. The things that we name clock exist, right? When we say that they exist, if I'm looking at a clock, the thing that I've named a clock, it exists in a material sense. And I'm not saying that things can only exist in a material sense because thoughts exist in a, in some sense. Um, but habits are names. Like think about nail biting. When we say that you have, if I say that, um, like my wife, Aliona, has the habit of nail biting sometimes, or often, she has the habit of nail biting, what do I mean? I mean that she repeatedly practices a certain behavior. That's what I mean. And sometimes the habit is such a slippery term because it can refer to the repeated practice of a behavior uh, that is self-conscious so therefore planned and intentional in the moment you go, I'm going to bite my nails right now. Usually that's not a good example, but you might be habitually, um, like for example, you could say that someone is habitually self-aware, but all, all you're saying is that they're repeatedly self-aware. Uh, and another important use of the term that I think is more useful, I kind of wish that it only meant this, is an automatized habit, or what might be described as an automatized behavior. This would be a behavior that is performed unselfconsciously, like the earlier example of me turning off the lights. But a really important thing with either use of the term is that they're both retrospective. Things are only habitual, and things only, a repeated behavior only qualifies as a habit until the behavior ceases to be repeated, in which case you go, the habit disappeared. Where did it go? Right? There's a kind of mystery to it. Um, they're not forever. And that's because they are a construction. They're a name. That They're a category that we use to refer to things in the world that are of a certain type. Um, so, like, you don't have habits. You repeatedly practice certain behaviors with a certain degree of self-consciousness. That's what it means to, quote-unquote, have a habit. Someone is only an alcoholic until they're not, right? And when you, if you go like, they broke the habit, you're just speaking in a metaphor there. You, what you mean is that their behavior has changed. So uh, habits are really useful as a description. They're at a higher level of analysis than actions because they are action patterns, right? Uh, they are patterns of action historically and because the past is often, although often not, but often, a good uh, basis from which to predict what will occur in the future, it's useful to talk about habits, right? Um, 
and and there's a lot of habits in nature uh in the sense that like the equivalent of an automatized habit for a person so like um pushing down again i'm speaking metaphorically here but pushing down the drive or the desire to turn the lights off down into your subconscious that's one way to talk about it that is the equivalent to water forming grooves and rocks as it flows through the rocks over time or a shirt that becomes formed to the shape of a hanger it's becoming automatic it's becoming uh, habitual by the way those aren't my examples I have to give credit, I will put this in the show notes, to William James, the founder, really the founder of psychology in my view, one of the most brilliant men to have ever lived, um, and the best American philosopher ever. Uh, he was a professor at Harvard, and he wasn't trained as a philosopher, he started out as a doctor, medical doctor, and then he became um, a, a psychologist he wrote the principles of psychology which is to this day like this was in the 19th century you know the 1800s to this day his principles of psychology is still assigned in almost every undergraduate psychology class and it's because he was so brilliant and it's also because psychology hasn't really progressed all that much and maybe that's because human minds haven't changed all that much and william james was just really good at systematizing the human mind um, so, so habits are descriptions of things that happen. Okay. So, uh, the habit of double think is to perform behaviors that shift attention away from doubt reflexively or automatically. There's a lot of ways to do this. Again, I'm an anti-essentialist, so you can do this in weird ways that I can't think of. Maybe one of the ways that you do it is you play with your ninja turtle action figures or something like it can be anything right um but uh um how these work is they become automatic such that they are cued by the environment and an important thing here and this might sound weird at first is that the environment can include a psychic state so someone who smokes cigarettes uh a lot um, the, what's the cue to smoke a cigarette? It might be walking outside, right? Could be that. It's probably that and other things. There are multiple cues. But it might also be stress, which is the, uh, stress is really everything. I don't really like to even talk about stress, but, um, you know, the idea that things are hard, the feeling that things are hard, maybe that's a cue. Right, that's in the environment in the sense that that's that's a it's in your psyche. That's a psychic state that cues something, right? Because it's really not very useful to differentiate between you and your environment um, that much. Uh, although I do think that you are an individual in an environment, and it's important to not lose track of that. When talking about cues, there's not much difference. Um, so. Doublethink is the reflexive performance of a behavior that distracts attention away from a doubt that is associated with a particular context. So when you, um, 
I am fascinated with cults, by cults. I'm particularly fascinated by the Westboro Baptist Church. I read this fascinating memoir in um, the book club I was in by Megan Phelps Roper, who is just a fascinating person. I think a really beautiful soul um, who is hyper self-aware because of her um, I think of because of religious debates. I think that there's a uniquely educational um, quality to being in a religious group, being in a dogmatic group, um, and and trying to understand why if, if things that don't make if the dogma isn't making sense to you, if you're the kind of person who wants to understand why things understand are are understandable to certain people what you will do when you talk to people i think is going to be wildly educational for you uh, psychologically to learn about how people think and why and her memoir i think it's called unfollow um, because twitter uh, was amazingly given (laughs) twitter's reputation and how it the effects it has in the world was actually quite positive for her um but in the westboro baptist church um, that's a heavily dogmatic, that's an authoritarian dogmatic environment, for real, if you want to try to find one. That's, that is, that's definitely one. Um, it's so fundamentalist, there's so much, uh, there's the stakes of doubting, of embracing doubt, focusing on doubt are incredibly high. People can tell. Just like a game of poker. Life is a long game of poker. And in a dogmatic environment, you have to be good at playing poker if you're going to make it. Because um, there's an, there, in every dogmatic environment is a notion of purity, ideological purity. To be a good dogmatist is to appear ideologically pure to other people. And there's an intense social pressure to conform because the stakes of not conforming are so high. This is definitely the case in 1984. If you, um, if you even give a hint, a whiff, that you doubt the doctrine, well, if someone sees that, they are going to jump on you. They're going to likely tell other people and raise the alarm, perhaps because they are genuine dogmatists and they are ideologically pure in some sense, in the sense that they are concerned for your soul or your um, continued existence, whatever that may look like. And they're like, oh my gosh, you must receive help from the community, right? That's the best, most charitable interpretation. And I think that can be true, right? I, I don't think that I'm an anti-essentialist. I think that sometimes people who are dogmatists are, they're genuine. The people like that exist, right? Um but honestly, I think most of the time it's these other things. Vindictiveness, they go, they don't, they want to um, exert power over you. They want to punish you to get ahead, right? They just want to get you out of the way. You see this so much today. Um, and I'll get into, I'll get into some examples. Um, and here's the, last, here's the last thing too. They might just be doing it out of fear that if other people find out that they didn't raise the alarm because they saw your doubt, that they're going to think that they're doubting themselves because that's something a doubter would do, wouldn't it? Wouldn't they? Like, only the ideologically pure would uh, uh, 
would really report it, right? Because they care. So you, if you're, you either want to be ideologically pure or you want, or you want to look ideologically pure. And if you don't do the thing that the ideologically pure person would do, well, that's a, uh, evidence of doubt. And this all is connected to conservatism, psychological conservatism, not political, not political conservatism, psychological conservatism. The idea is that anything that's new is likely bad, right? If you're in a dogmatist authoritarian society, novel, uh, novel thoughts, and thoughts include ideas, interpretations, and behaviors. Behaviors are thoughts. Um, because uh, go back to the earlier example with the, the performance of an automatized practice. Um, a thought initiated the automization of that practice, and thought sustains it. Um, psychological conservatives, dogmatists, are hostile to novelty. And I really, really, really want to point out that anyone of any worldview can be like this. Because anything that is a worldview can be um, can become static in your mind such that you don't want it to change and you're scared that it will change for good reason, perhaps bad reason, doesn't really matter. So I want to give an example because I think a lot of people, at least a lot of the people I know, will be really, it'll be really easy to think of political conservatism of like, oh, uh, like just the history of, of what we now consider uh, <laughs> human rights, right? Like for a long time, people didn't think that um, gay people deserve dignity um, and respect. And eventually, and gay people here, gay, the idea of gay is kind of new too. Uh, this would be people who um, pursue same-sex attraction. Um, but, you know, even gay people aren't attracted to everyone of the same sex. That's an important thing. Like, just because you're gay doesn't mean you're attracted to everyone. And even if you're straight, it doesn't mean you're attracted to everyone. So what are we really saying? We're saying we're attracted to who we're attracted to, but... Um, you know, it's easy to think about how a kind of conservatism held back the political and philosophical intellectual recognition of the humanity of, or the creation, really, that's a better way to think about it, more historically realistic, uh, the creation of the humanity of gay people and who were oppressed. That's, that's a good example, but here I want to give some examples just so that I'm not misunderstood because I'm so worried that when I say conservatism, people are going to not understand what I mean. I'm going to give you some examples of conservatism, uh, psychological conservatism among political progressives. These are not people who I think are progressing anything, but who are labeled progressive according to a certain classification scheme that has unfortunately become entrenched in our society. It's such a charged term, progressive. Um, and conservative, too. Like, we should conserve this. Although I, I, I do think progressive is more charged than conservative. Although, you know, I, I would be probably labeled a progressive on most fronts. So I'm talking as someone who would be classified this way. I just am annoyed that it doesn't make much sense to me. Um, but woke people. 
people who, who, if you even dare, if you fucking dare to ask a question about trans people, they will pounce on you. They are psychological conservatives. They are afraid for some reason or another, or they are pretending to be afraid of novelty, of new thoughts. That's what it is. Right? Anyone who's like that is a psychological conservative. And in my view, they're standing in the way of progress. Because anyone who stands in the way of thought stands in the way of progress, in my view. Um, that's a good example. Here's another example. People who are class reductionists. So these would be, there's not many people like this, but um, maybe Ben Burgess. Uh, he's resisted the, uh, this accusation of class reductionism. I think he's a brilliant guy. Um, and I agree with a lot of what he says. Because I'm concerned about, I, I tend to view politics in terms of class most of the time. But I recognize that culture matters um, a ton. And uh, so it, if you were to go up to a class, a, a dogmatic class reductionist, not all, class re not all people who are like this are dogmatic. That's such an important point. Anyone of any worldview can be dogmatic. Dogmatism is a psychological orientation to ideas. It is not a set of ideas. It is the psychological orientation to those ideas. So it can be any set of ideas you can be dogmatic about, any set. Um, uh, and if you were to walk up to someone like them and you'd be like, hey, like, it sure is odd that certain millionaires and billionaires are pushing very different policies than other millionaires and billionaires. And if class, just class, determines what kind of policies people support, how do you account for the heterogeneity in the, um, in the political prescriptions advocated by the population of really rich people? How do you account for that if class determines it? Well, if they go like, how dare you even suggest it? Or if they, if they ignore the question or if they um, give you some, uh, some answer that has been obviously repeated, right? Something that's like formulated that it's, it's, uh, it's just something that they kind of regurgitate, right? Then you know that, there is, that in this moment, at least, they are acting like a psychological conservative. So I'm really not talking about political conservatism, although... Um, political conservatives can certainly be psychologically conservative, and there is a correlation. Uh, although I think that increasingly we are <laughs> realizing that maybe there's not a correlation after all. There might just appear to be one. Maybe the people who identify as progressive are actually just as stuck in their ways as the people who identify as conservative. And they've just been in charge of the classification schemes because they've been in charge of the universities. And so it just hasn't been realized. I think that that's the case. <laughs> Deeply cynical about political bias in university, even though oftentimes that bias runs in the direction that I would support. Um, 
So that's what I mean. Okay, so doublethink inheritors are people who have been socialized into the habit of doublethink, right? They are taught not to doubt, or they, and, and by teaching not to doubt, what that means is they are taught ways, implicitly taught ways to distract themselves from their doubt. And this can include all kinds of things. Um, like, oh, if you're feeling doubt, like in um, Brave New World, for example, people would take a drug. I think it was called Soma. That's a, that is a very, taking a drugs um, to overcome doubt. And by the way, doubt, in this case, I'm talking in the 1984 context about dogma, but doubt can be the sense that you're not doing the right thing in life. The sense that it can be shame. It can be guilt. Uh, those are things that, just like doubt, shouldn't be seen as something to avoid, as like, oh, I'm struggling with it. They should be things to work through, right? Because really, what is a struggle if not a fight for victory, a working through? People don't think of it like that for some reason a lot. It, not for some reason, it's the language obscures it, and the social incentives obscure it. Social incentives impact um you know your subjectivity your psychology so it's it's they're deeply in, entrenched um so yeah people who in, inherit double think they they are ignorant of their ignorance because they have been implicitly taught by implicitly i mean that they mimic the activities of the uh, group that they are socialized in so they have been socialized to perform behaviors of ignorance that keep something that could come into self-conscious awareness, meaning that could become an object of thought to interrogate with thought. Uh, they keep it um, from becoming interrogated by thought. There's a lot of ways to do this. Taking drugs in, in 1984, Winston drinks a lot of gin, victory gin. Drinking, wow, what a way to, to distract yourself, right? It's one of many ways. So I'm going to go on a little tangent here about the symbolism of eyes and how it can relate to this that I think you will like. And then I'll wrap up this section, and then we will go on to the last section, doing doublethink. That's kind of the where all of this is going. Everything will really culminate, hopefully, and tie in there. And then I'll shut up for like five seconds before the second segment. <laughs> okay. So I've been talking about doublethink and ignorance. I've been talking about how um, ignorance is making something that was previously present in attention, that came into attention, making that thing absent by diverting attention away from it. Doublethink here is the automatic diversion of attention away from it, where it pops into attention. Remember the quote at the very beginning, something can come into consciousness and then immediately through an act of hypnosis, to make it unconscious again, right, through a reflexive behavior. Um, there is a deep relationship between the symbolism of eyes and dogmatism. Here's what I mean. So earlier I talked about how the third eye, the mind eye, often represented as an eye on the forehead, that represents attention, and um, it can also represent 
certain kinds of attention, certain modes of, of attention. Another way of saying this is it can represent a certain perspective. Often, when people awake from dogmatism, when they become self-conscious of the things that they have been ignoring, it's like that their third eye has opened. Um, it's like that they are becoming a new person, becoming aware. And there's a lot of there's a lot of awesome symbols related to eyes and attention. I hate it when people say that characters in movies shouldn't have scars, uh, and it's like, oh well, that stigmatizes scars. Like fuck off. Scars represent um, changes in attention. Like after Anakin Skywalker, um, the the scar on Anakin Skywalker's eye represents a permanent change to the way that he sees the world. He can never go back to seeing a world, the world the other way. Oftentimes, evil characters, like the bad guy in um, How to Train Your Dragon, has a big scar. Often, the scars represent changes that can, in, in, in the way that you see the world, that are permanent in a bad way, right? They can be a, in a good way or in a bad way. It's interesting that Warriors, uh, benevolent warrior kings, as well as dangerous, evil villains, like, like literally Scar in The Lion King, um, they both have scars often. So it's, it's not stigmatizing necessarily to have a scar because it's about the way in which the, what the scar represents, the way in which the perspective has been changed. Often it, uh, in like movies with like creatures, uh, there will be a creature with a lot of eyes, and this creature will be either um, wise um, or cunning, and often both. They're dangerous because um, to be wise is to be able to see things from many different angles, to know many different perspectives. You know, seeing um, is in texts is often um, a way of talking about knowing because of the conceptual proximity between seeing and believing. But importantly, two people can be looking at the same place and see different things, understand that which they are looking at differently. Seeing is not just about looking, but it's about understanding, interpreting, perceiving experiencing right there is no there is no like a uh, neutral observer it doesn't exist everyone brings their perspective to bear um so so leaving dogma or or um addressing the th that which you have been ignoring in your life is like becoming woke the term woke um, has been kind of co-opted by a certain political ideology, um, but you can like awaken to all kinds of things. Awakening to something just means becoming self-aware of it. Um, there's this absolutely just transformatively awesome series on YouTube that I'll link to in the show notes. It's extremely long. We're talking, I think, over 50 hours. <laughs> 
So, I mean, it's a commitment, but it's called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, and it's, it's one of the most profound things I have ever, ever in my life gone through. It's free, <laughs> and it's on YouTube, and it's totally brilliant. It's by this professor at the University of Toronto, a colleague of Jordan Peterson's, actually, uh, named John Verveke, who studies relevance. And the question of relevance is the question of attention. What is relevant is, what are you attending to? And how does that work? Fascinating stuff. Okay, so inherited ignorance, doublethink, is the reflexive diversion of attention away from doubt for the sake of staying comfortable. But in so doing, you sacrifice your individuality because if something is a doubt, if that's what it is to you, then is an indication that something is disrupting your goals. And every time that you don't pay attention to that, and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad, like you can, something can bother you and you can pay attention to it and then you can think about it, right? You can analyze it and then you can go, you know what, actually, that shouldn't be bothering me. I need to, I need to like go about things a little bit differently because that shouldn't be bothering me at all, right? But at least you've thought it through. And actually, once you do that, it won't, it won't continue to bother you most likely, right? But if not to look, it, it can also be that you look at it and then you're like, oh my gosh, things are wrong. My life is a lie, meaning I'm going in the reverse direction from my goals. That's what it means if your life is a lie, right? The goals that I thought I was pursuing, I'm not pursuing them. I've been kidding myself, tricking myself by ignoring the indications that I've been going in the wrong direction, right? These are a lot of metaphors here for talking about goals. All right, so let's move on to the finality, doing doublethink. We've talked about inherited doublethink, but how can you inherit doublethink that you create? That's the question. How can you deceive yourself? What is self-deception? All of this has brought us to this moment. <laughs> Let's talk about it. Inherited ignorance is a form of deception, but it's not self-deception in a real sense because the self that is being deceived is, um, it's just happy, like it's unplanned, right? If someone lies to you, um, if they if they tell you something in an attempt to manipulate you to do something, you're thinking that you're doing X, but they actually are thinking about it in terms of you doing Y, and they wanted you to do Y all along, and you think you're playing this game where you're doing X, but they have deceived you, and they're thinking that you're doing Y. The only corollary of, to that to yourself can't be through socialization, right? Because what is who is the deceiver there? It's not it's not really easy to figure that out. Like if you inherit the behaviors of ignorance without being self-aware that you're inheriting them or that you were going to inherit them or that you have inherited them, if none of those things are possible, then you have certainly been deceived in some sense. But it's not really uh, your doing. And that's why 
This section is called Doing Double Think. If you are someone who is not currently indoctrinated and would like to become indoctrinated, then this is for you. And again, remember, I'm not advocating that you actually do any of this. <laughs> uh, this is stuff that I would say don't do it, but it, I think it's really important, really important for you to grasp how this could work so that you can avoid it. And then also the opposite of what I'm, what I'm about to tell you, the opposite of self-deception is self-discipline. And interestingly enough, many of the mechanics are the same. It's a little disturbing, uh, but with great power comes great responsibility, eh? Okay, so doing double-think, you must be self-aware of yourself, and you must know the truths about the three big lies. And here's why. You must know the first truth. You must know the lie about lies. You must know the truth that lies um, are not statements intended to misrepresent or conceal known truths, but are instead um, truthfulness is a function of something's relationship to your goals. True is a subjective property. You must know that if you're going to self-indoctrinate, because if you don't uh, keep that in mind, if you don't remember it, if you lose sight of it, you will be deceived by people who come and tell you, quite convincingly and compellingly, I might add, oftentimes, that there is such a thing as the truth. That there is such a thing as a capital T truth that exists apart from you, and you will get sidetracked from your mission. Your mission here is to indoctrinate yourself to perpetuate a dogma. Your mission here is to become a slave. Right? It's hard to become a slave. It's hard to force yourself into bondage if you are sidetracked by other people's missions. This is your mission, and it's true, because it's your goal. It's not really true, but in this situation, you're trying to self-deceive, so I, to me, that's a, that's a paradox, but we're going with it, because we, we're talking about the mechanics of self-deception. Okay, so you must know the truth about the big lie. Uh, 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 you must know the truth about the big lie about lies. Otherwise, you will get sidetracked by people who claim to know capital T truth, and that can be very distracting. Next, you must know that the truth. You must know the truth about intentions, because um, the knowledge of how intentions work that they can start out as self-conscious and then um, be performed automatically, reflexively. Um, because you have automatized the behaviors, you must know that because that's how self-indoctrination works, right? You can't be indoctrinated and be aware that you are indoctrinated. To be indoctrinated is to be ignorant of the fact that you have been indoctrinated, to be ignorant of your ignorance. That's what it means to be indoctrinated. So it's totally impossible to be self-aware that you are indoctrinated. That is an oxymoron. That's a contradiction. Um, so... But in order to deceive yourself, you must understand the mechanics of automatic habit formation, because that's how it works. And finally, you must know the, truths, the truth about the big lie about inactions, because you must understand, again, that in order to deceive yourself, you have to intend certain things in certain ways. 
if you fall into the trap of trying to intend an absence, your progress uh, and your pursuit of self-indoctrination will be totally thwarted. You'll get stuck. Often getting stuck is intending an absence. Okay? Here's the weird thing. In order to deceive yourself, you have to forget these truths. Right? These are the truths of self-awareness. These are the truths that are required for you to know your responsibility in this world, your freedom of existence, right? The fact that you can deceive yourself is the same thing that you can discipline yourself. You can gain control over your future, right? But the indoctrinated, they don't think that they have control, right? They have relinquished control to the dogma or whatever. They'll, they'll say it's to to something. They'll give you an answer. It's a political mission. It's God. It's whatever. But really, it's the dogma, right? From a, from a third-person perspective. Here's, it's, it's, it, this is a difficult thing to talk about. It's difficult to talk about this process because it's, it's multi-layered, right? It's thing, I've built it up this far because it's just so complicated. And here's kind of a clear representation of how self-deception works. Think about the you that exists right now. Not in this very second, not now you, but present you. When we talk about the present, we don't mean this very moment, usually. Instead, we mean this present context. And what the present context refers to is going to be a function of the time scale that we are considering. Like if we go, right now I'm at this job, presently I'm at this job. You could be at this job for 10 years. But what matters is the contrast that you're attempting to uh, draw out, right? So um, present you, so whatever life stage you want to consider yourself in currently, um, that makes sense for what we're going to talk about, that's present you. So think about present you having a conversation with the future you that you have indoctrinated. The future you has been indoctrinated into some dogma, religious, political, whatever. Um, and they're having a conversation. Present you says, um, present you is self-aware, right? Present you hasn't been indoctrinated yet. Present you sees the doubts, sees the contradictions in the dogma. And present you says, you know what? I'm bothered by my thoughts about the doubt, about these doubts. I'm bothered by these doubts of the, in the dogma, right? And the fact that I'm bothered by them means that some of my goals in life are to overcome these doubts. What do you think about that? And then future deceived you just like looks at you with like confusion and disgust, maybe. And future deceived you, future indoctrinated you, says like, what doubts? What are you talking about? I, what doubts? There are no doubts. It's certain. The dogma is true with a capital T. It will never change, ever. It won't change. It is forever and absolute and perfect. It is ideal. I can think of no better. It is ideal. And how dare you even suggest otherwise? That's self-deception. That's self-indoctrination. That's what it's like, right? Okay. So I think that I've covered pretty well what doublethink is. But now I'm going to get super practical with you. 
about how you can do it. First thing you need to do is you need to figure out what dogma you want to indoctrinate yourself into. What kind of what kind of zealot do you want to be? Which what kind of slave do you want to be? What kind of authoritarian subject would you like to personify? Figure that out, right? And uh, then you don't you don't buy into it yet, right? If you buy into it, then it's then none of this can happen. But say you want to buy into it eventually. You want to become a slave to it. You want to forget your freedom by constantly ignoring the indications of it. Here's what you do. First, identify the doubts that you have with it. Um, these can be certain contradictions that you see. These can be hypocrisies that you see in the world um, with other people who claim to believe the dogma. Right? There's a lot of sources of doubt, and they're not all logical, meaning they're not all like abstract thoughts. A lot of them relate to the relationship between that ideology and the world. Write them all down. Identify the biggest ones. Prioritize them. Next, identify the contexts in which those doubts tend to arise. Right? If you were going to join a dogmatic... By the way, like becoming a dogmatist here means it's really important that you also join a dogmatic group um, that is associated with the dogma. It's much harder to do it without exploiting the social incentives to your advantage here. Because remember, your mission is to indoctrinate yourself. So identify the contexts in which those doubts arise. And this would include um, physical contexts, like places, um, areas, roads, whatever. Um, this would include social contexts, groups, rituals, collective activities. Um, and this would also include psychic contexts, like maybe maybe things are okay and like you can like you're like, you know what, I can believe in this dogma, right? But then when things get hard, you're suddenly like, I don't know about this dogma. All right, okay, boom, context. Write that down. Identify it. The next thing you want to do is you want to create a list of behaviors of ignorance that you can perform upon the emergence of doubt. And this will, these, there can be a lot of these. Um, so what you want to do is you want to figure out things that um, fill your attention, um, things that are fun, kind of light and interesting, things that can preoccupy your mind to keep out the doubts. So this might be like, um, and these can be things that are behaviors, but they can also be um, like uh, rituals of thought. Like for example, um, you can um, eat, um, eat yummy food, you can get on your phone and scroll on social media, right, filling your mind. Uh, you can gossip with people. Uh, you can listen to familiar music. Um, read familiar books. Uh, here's a psychic ritual. Imagine just violent things. Imagine brutalizing someone or being brutalized. That, that will fill attention. Violence is um, uh, something that can, um, can capture us, right? Uh, or sex. Imagine uh, sexual activity of some kind, or, or engage in it, um, whether with someone else or not. These are behaviors that can be, again, not, they're not essentially, none of these things are necessarily a behavior of ignorance. Maybe you just like doing some of these things. Maybe, maybe they help you progress your goals to some extent, right? 
So it's important here to be aware of the kinds of things that fill your attention. Because everything is for the perpetuation of the dogma, right? Even if the dogma says you shouldn't do this, well, it, it's worth it in the end. It's justified because these things are in service of perpetuating the dogma. That's the mentality to have. That's the subjective property of truth, right? If someone says like, well, but according to this, it's not true that you should do this. Be like, hell no. My goal is to deceive myself. <laughs> um, and another, another category of behaviors of ignorance that you're going to want to mix in are things that reduce your attention. That's one way of, that's just a metaphorical way of talking about it, but it's, it's the most useful way to describe what I mean. Um, this, would, this would reduce your capacity to analyze thought systematically. This would reduce your capacity for self-awareness. Things like taking drugs, that's a big one. Drinking alcohol, or yeah, drinking alcohol. Exercising incredibly intensely. Try running at full speed and thinking about thoughts. Good luck. Um, uh, and again, engaging in sex sexual activity. Um, hard, to, uh, hard to do that while, being, while thinking through things systematically. Well, uh, hmm. should I do this or should I do that <laughs> while it's going on? Good luck, right? Things like that. And then identify behaviors that are actionable within the certain contexts in which doubt emerges and mentally associate them first. Think, okay, well, if I doubt the dogma here at the grocery store, I'll think this or I'll do that or I'll eat this or whatever. And if it's in this context, I'll do that. And if it's in this context, I'll do that. And start to mentally associate them. Run them through your mind. Write them out. And then practice them. Practice, cre put the doubt in your head first. Maybe write out the doubt and look at it. Or force the doubt into your mind and then practice the behavior. Practice, practice, practice the behavior. Across contexts. Across contexts, practice these behaviors of ignorance when doubt emerges. And that's really all it takes, man. Over time, if you keep doing that, eventually you will gain the skill, the anti-skill of ignorance, and you will become a dogmatist. You know what, another important thing here is um, befriend other people who are on, also on a mission to become ideologically pure, not psychologically, ideologically pure. Hang out with them. Buy into what they're doing. Even if it's uncomfortable at first, do what they do. Follow along. Conform. Get into the habit of conforming. The social incentives will, will bear down upon you, and uh, they'll help you out in your mission. Okay. I don't think I need to go into that much more detail. I think you get the idea. The behaviors of ignorance, they become automized, automatized. And then your self-awareness is depleted. 
Now, again, speaking metaphorically, what I mean by that very specifically is the likelihood that you will think about the doubt, that you will focus your attention on the doubt and think other thoughts about it and interrogate the doubt, pursue it, be curious about it. The likelihood that that's going to happen is dramatically reduced once these behaviors of ignorance are automatized. You and, and there it is. You have enslaved yourself. And you will have forgotten, by the way, the three truths. Because you will, you will not remember... Um, you, you, anytime the thought comes in your head that the dogma isn't capital T truth, well, now you just have a behavior of ignorance to wash over that. You've bought into a capital T truth now. You have a big truth daddy that you're enslaved to. In the piece, I try to end it kind of dramatically, and I say stuff like this. At this point, now that you have deceived yourself and self-indoctrinated, you will have transformed what is currently self-awareness of doubt into ignorant ignorance. You will have killed a part of your psyche, a source of thought, by rendering it unselfconscious. You're no longer focusing on the doubt, the potential for you, the possibilities that could come from focusing on that doubt and working through it, they're not, they're not going to be realized. You're cutting yourself off from potential. And you will have necessarily forgotten the truths about the three lies. You will have successfully deceived yourself. This is doing doublethink. This is tricking yourself in the most significant ways. This is lying to yourself. Okay. That might have freaked you out a little bit. And good. I hope it did. It should. To me, nothing is more terrifying than this. This is hell. <laughs> hell is being a zombie uh, where you don't even realize where you're going and why. And you're just going along. You're not an individual. Um, literally, to be an individual is to break out on your own. You can't be, a, you can't conform to a group and be an individual. Not, well, it, it depends on how, how much you conform, right? But you get the idea. So the flip side of all of this, the more uplifting part, is the self-discipline part. You might have seen that in, the, in my prescriptions for self-deception are a lot of the tools for self-discipline, right? Repeated practice, identifying contexts that are associated with things that run contrary to your goal, right? And that's because self-discipline, as um, my friend Paul likes to say, uh, is restrictive. Everything that's a freedom from is a freedom to, or it should be. You go to school, you restrict yourself. God, few things are as restricting as going to a graduate program, I'll tell you that. Um, and you do that so that you have new opportunities afforded to you that you didn't have before, right? The restriction is an opportunity. Jocko Willink says it as discipline is freedom, right? But it's really important here that it's not just discipline, right? It's the way, the way, the medium, 
of the discipline. What is the discipline for? With great power comes great responsibility. Are you disciplining yourself to murder a bunch of people? You disciplining yourself, you know, are you like one of these disgusting, uh, what, uh, you know, mass shooters who's like doing target practice, performing discipline for the sake of accomplishing a horrific, despicable goal? Or, <laughs> you know, or are you disciplining yourself to, to, like, I'm trying to discipline myself to become a good clinical psychologist. And personally, I think that's a great thing. A lot of, some people don't like psychologists. Fine, right? They can think it's bad. I think it's good. So the way that you are self-disciplining is everything, right? Um, and the power of self-discipline, it is power, right? Power over yourself is, is some of the greatest power you can possibly have because how are you going to exercise power over other people if you don't have power over yourself? Um, and I'm not saying you should try to manipulate people, but I just mean if you're going to symbolize something important and inspire, inspire people, the power of inspiration can change civilization. Like, that's, that's a big thing to say, but, but it can, and it has. It has. Um, people like Gandhi, um, people like the historical Jesus, people like uh, Genghis Khan. Like, these are inspiring figures. Napoleon. And then I... I I think even the bad ones are inspiring to some extent, even though I disagree with them. It's inspi- people who have that much power are inspiring. I don't have a... I want power. These people who are like, oh, it's bad to have power. Like, what do you... Jesus Christ, do you want to live or not? Just kill yourself now. <laughs> For real. <laughs> like, oh, power's bad. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry for having power. Like, fuck you. Why don't you use it for good, right? Why don't you develop yourself? Why don't you, like, care for something and stand for something, right? Why don't you use the power? Use it. Because it's not about the having of it. It's about what it's used for. That's what's important. It's, like, just a, such, a, such a weak, pathetic view to, to apologize for your power, in my view. <laughs> there, there's my... Uh, there's my Nietzsche influence, but I, I really feel that way. So it's like, it's like, no, like you have this one life. You have this one life. You have this time that you can prioritize. Make the most of it. Make the impact that you want to have on the world, right? And that doesn't necessarily mean you need to be selfish. Of course not, right? Don't, you don't need to hoard power. There's actually, actually, if you hoard power, you're kind of giving it away because people don't like hoarders. Right? If you're hoarding power, uh, you're probably not going to have that power for very long. That's why, like, mutinies happen on ships, right? Because, like, the, uh, what do they call it? The, uh, the captain, it's like he's hoarding power. He's not being diplomatic or democratic. He, and then the, the other people are like, actually, you know, this guy has had a lot of power, but now we hate him. So let's kill him, right? Where does power go there, right? So part of having power is having discipline, right? And being able to talk to other people and communicate with them and learn from them and to know uh, how to read other people, read, again, think about the poker game, 
to know how to read other people well enough uh, such that you can work with them and inspire inspire them uh, so that you can um, achieve your goals together, that you can achieve your goals and they can achieve their goals. So um, I wrote this self-deception piece and I'm going through this podcast because I think that self-discipline is a path to freedom, just as self-deception is a path to slavery, right? The, 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 uh, the power that you need is very similar. It's almost exactly the same to do either. But the way that you use it will determine which path, um, which path you, you walk down. I think that's everything I have to say about that. I hope you've really liked I hope you liked this. I mean if I'm hoping, if I can just wish, I, I hope that you've loved it beyond all belief. <laughs> but even if you've liked it a little bit, even if you hate it, honestly, uh, at least you feel towards it, right? At least you're not apathetic. Um so awesome. Uh let's move on to the second segment, um, and then then we'll be done. All right, I'm just going to rapid fire some thoughts and recommendations at you. Recommendation number one is uh, related to my wife, Aliona. So uh, Aliona is a Ukrainian immigrant. Uh, She's like actually from Ukraine and immigrated to America with her mom and her sister. And their story is really cool. Um, Obviously, things in Ukraine have been bad, to say the least. Um, and Aliona has done a lot of work to try to figure out the best way to help the people um, in Ukraine. The vast majority of her family, everyone on her mom's side, um, and her biological father is also in Ukraine. Um, aunts, uncles, cousins, grand- grandparents, like so many loved ones are, are in Ukraine. And it's, it's been devastating. Um, and she, she's done a lot of work trying to figure out the best way to help. And ended up, what she's been doing is raising money. She's actually raised, like, thousands of dollars um, and sent the money through um, Venmo to her cousin, who lives in Poland. And he and his family have been transporting supplies to help people in Ukraine from Poland. Um, and this is, seems to be the most direct, the quickest, um, and the way that guarantees that the most amount of money gets to the people who uh, need the most help. Um, so if you want to support Aliona's family and um, support her uh, cousin's efforts to help the people in Ukraine more generally, um, you can donate to her fund uh, through the Venmo link that I'm going to put in uh, the show notes. Um, I am a little uncomfortable with this just because I'm basically asking you to trust me and Aliona to use this money as we say that we will. And all I can do is promise you that we will. Um, this is really serious to us and, you know, and it's serious to her family and her too. Um, and any help there would be greatly appreciated. You know, things aren't in the news as much, but it's it's still really rough. You know, it's not like things are, are better just because we don't hear about it. Um, so that's recommendation number one. 
you know, and a, a thought that I had randomly to go to totally switch it up, <laughs> diverting from that is I was listening to NPR and uh, they were talking about, um, uh, they were talking about China and how in Shanghai um, they had those, they locked, they locked all of the residents of Shanghai. Um, hope I'm getting that right. I think I am in their homes and apartments for two months the government went you can't leave that's terrifying um you know for all of its flaws i'm really glad i live in america where we have more freedom and i'm glad i live in texas um uh well for some reasons and definitely not for others um but you know so the the, the npr host was like yeah well the economic impacts are just going to be devastating and, you know, I, I have a thing when people talk about the economy, like during COVID when people were like, how dare you care about the economy? Like, don't you care about people? And it's like, wow, you seriously don't understand the economy. <laughs> like, you don't know what that is. Um, the economy is you getting a job. The economy is you getting laid off. The economy is you being able to afford gas. The economy is, it's, it's your activity, right? It's one thing to talk about like the stock market. That's a little different, right? Although it's still not um, totally disconnected from this. But like the the functioning of the economy is the ability for you to do what you want to do. It's not an abstract thing, right? People who talk about the economy and they're like, oh, you only care about the economy and not people like, oh my gosh, you, you are dumb. <laughs> You're sorry, but for real. Um, and but but the thing that gets me is because that's what the economy is like when we talk about the economy we're talking about the collective forms of life that we are participating in as individuals and our capacity to you know use currency use money to to get what we want and to pursue the things that we're you know trying to accomplish in our lives that when we say that like when we talk about negative economic impacts i think that's just like a proxy for like man life sucks and that's bad. Like it's like a it's a it's like a weirdly scientificy sounding way of just casting a moral judgment. Oh man, well that'll have a really bad impact on the economy. It's like, oh, people's lives will suck, and that's bad. That I think that's all that means. That's a thought. Another thought. Just again, it's just a weird thing how much like having a name can make things seem like they make sense. Like, <laughs> I was talking to some friends. We went to go see the new Doctor Strange movie, which, oh, I could just rant again. I hated that movie so much. The CGI is awesome. And I really actually liked the message of the first Doctor Strange. I mean, it's not like a super sophisticated movie, but it's all about self-awareness and attention and habit formation. And, um, I you know, I like those topics, obviously. Uh, but uh, we were just standing in line. We were talking about somehow we were talking about digestive issues and like really serious digestive issues. And then someone was like, uh, "Oh yeah, I mean, you know, it could be like uh, uh, we were just talking about this some other person, and they, you know, they might have like uh, IBS." And then it's like, "Oh yeah, you know, um, IBS. That's probably what it is." And, it, and it's weird, like just having the name. But really, what is the name? The name is just shorthand for the list of symptoms <laughs> it's like well i'm having a runny nose and i'm having a sore throat and 
having body aches, and it's like, oh, you have a cold. You have a cold. You have it. And it's like, oh, thank you. Wow, I'm so relieved to know now. But really, cold is just a name for that set of symptoms. So it's like, oh my gosh, doctor, I have, I have a runny nose and sore throat and body aches. And, he's, and when he turns and says you have a cold, he's basically just turning and turning and go, wow, I'm agreeing that you have those things. <laughs> and we're like, thanks for explaining it. You've explained it so well. Now I understand, whereas I didn't before. <laughs> uh, that's a thought. Um, another recommendation, Birdman. Older movie. If you haven't seen Birdman, you're missing out. Um, I can't remember what the... There's, a, there's another name for it. I think it's called Birdman, The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. Something like that. And the movie is about ignorance, kind of. And it's about uh, forgetting the freedom in life and letting the past haunt you. Um, and it's about facing the future um, while inheriting the ignorance and the perspective of the past. It's just a brilliant movie. Um, the actors are incredible. Uh, Emma Stone is in it. She is great. And, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of a, it's a very existentialist, I would say. Um, but also kind of exasperating and exhausting, but in a good way movie. It's kind of like, it has a, a, a kind of unending energy that's not quite like Uncut Gems, which is like, I would say it like takes that to the maximum level. Uh, but it has that kind of like, it's never stopping. It's just going and going. And I love that. I love it when things are happening. Um, like, I don't like it in video games when I have to walk forever. Oh my gosh. Why, why is that acceptable? Why has anyone accepted walking in video games? Like, you, walking is boring. Like, unless you're thinking and walking. But if you're like, if you're just like, I need to get to the store and you have to walk, like, it's one thing if you want the exercise. But if you don't want the exercise, it's just like, you're just like, I, if, I could, if I could, I would teleport to the store. And in games, you can teleport. That's, like, or you could. You could teleport. But they, but they don't. And people are like, thank you. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for the time I get to spend wandering. And then they're, like, proud of it. They're like, well, I have been walking in Skyrim for seven hours. And it's like, wow, you have no life. <laughs> you're, you're choosing to, you're not even getting exercise. You're just walking in a game. I hate that so much. Like, just, no. No. Make things happen. I want things to happen more. Faster, please. No walking. Um, okay. Uh, another random thought. You know, people talk about, like, cultural colonization. I just, I don't understand that so much. It makes me feel stupid, but I, I just don't get it. Like, when people are like, it's bad to colonize cultures, it's like, how do you think, what do you think culture is? I don't understand that. It's like people are like totally conflating culture with like a specific ideology or something. Like, like when, when you go somewhere and you find out something new and cool and you go, that's cool. I want to do that. You're being colonized by that culture, right? Every time you learn something, you're having a cultural change. Culture is another word for your priorities. 
and the actions that they produce and the practices, right? So, like, don't we, like, to, to, to be very concerned about cultural colonization is to be dogmatic and say that certain people shouldn't think certain thoughts. Oh, no, don't, don't expose them to those thoughts. They'll be colonized by them. And it's like, well, do they like the thoughts? What, what do they think? Do they want to think the thoughts? Are the thoughts better for their goals? Like, does that matter? Colonization. That's so weird to me. Like, I, I mean, I, I don't, obviously, like, a group, com- one group coming in and, like, just, like, politically oppressing another group, that's bad, but that's not cultural colonization, necessarily. Um, and if something, if the cultures mix in a certain way where the ways of life that the group that was previously oppressed, if those ways of life become kind of extinguished through the political oppression, that doesn't necessarily mean that those previous ways of life were are good now. Like, it doesn't mean that we should be like, we should go back to those. We should like resurrect those. Those are still good. It's like, excuse me, have you noticed time has changed? Things are different now? What makes you think it's better? And, and also, and also, aren't you trying to colonize them by being like, we should protect this past culture. You're choosing. You're going, according to my perspective, according to my cultural beliefs, this other culture is a thing that should be protected and perpetuated for other people who don't currently exist. The next generation should know about this culture. What the fuck are you doing if not colonizing those people with culture? What do you think you're doing? Hate that. Um, wow, my, my thoughts are kind of angry. <laughs> um, what, do I have any nice thoughts? Um, one kind of thought that I, I talked kind of hinted at um, in the podcast was I really think intelligence, like just I think the most practical way to think about intelligence is just a transferable pattern recognition. Um, like your ability to recognize patterns is definitely associated with intelligence. But I don't think it's just the recognition of a pattern, or I mean that's that's one way to put it. But I think a more precise way to put it is the recognition of a pattern instantiating across contexts, because then it it has a practical benefit, right? Then it it gives you um, multiple perspectives, uh, ways. It gives you a tool, a conceptual tool that you can deploy in different contexts to help you. Like if you think like, oh, I can only think like this here, or this pattern only exists here. Well, that might not help you discern what's happening in other areas of life. I think that's a, I think that's a really good, useful, easy um, definition of, uh, of intelligence there. Um, yeah. Finally, uh, I gotta recommend Ricky Gervais's new stand-up special. Uh, super nature it's brilliant and what i love about rookie gervais and here's a weird thing um i don't idolize rich people because they're rich i think that that that's stupid like especially if if it didn't seem like it took them that much skill to be rich like um if they inherit a lot of money um or even if they inherit a sizable amount of money, and then you would have to just be kind of really stupid 
to mess it up. Like if they inherit money and social or business connections um, and the trust of people because of their name, that's, that's a lot of power. Like it's you got to be pretty stupid to mess that up, right? Like it's it's easy to mess it up, right? But I mean, we have to have pretty low expectations of you to mess that up. So I don't really have much respect for people just because they're rich. I, th- I think it's kind of stupid. Uh, but I think it's interesting um, that rich people are the ones who are, I think, kind of having an impact on our culture that I think is super good. I, like I mentioned earlier, um, you know, I'm a lot of the things, a lot of my political positions would be classified as like progressive. Some would be seen as like radically progressive, <laughs> but I won't go into that right now. Um, uh, but I think that what progress is, how progress happens is through the communication and expression of thought. So I see dogmatism as like the ultimate enemy. Um, and, uh, and I think a lot of people in power now are super dogmatic while pretending to be helpful as, as people in power always do. They're always here to help the little guy, right? While, and strangely enough, strangely enough, their ability to help the little guy is contingent upon their having more power. Wow. That sure is a coincidence. Vote for us and, and we'll protect you. We'll protect you. Just give us the power. It's like, hmm, okay. Yeah, that seems totally <laughs> no problem there. <laughs> I mean, and, and everyone's saying that, you know, for the most part. But like Ricky Gervais, and, and he is so perfectly comedically self-aware uh, and, and funny about recognizing how rich he is. You know, he's like, oh gosh, he is, he's just, he talks about his mansion. It's so funny. Um and um, I think he, Ricky Gervais, I think, made money by being a brilliant, hilarious, creative person who's brought joy and inspiration to so many people. Um, but here he is. He doesn't have to do the stand-up special. He doesn't have to push back against the dogmatic people who say that you shouldn't think certain thoughts, you shouldn't say certain things, right? These people who are inhibiting progress by inhibiting thought. I don't care. I don't care what you believe what what you think is good if you say don't think certain things i don't care what you think you are you are inhibiting progress you're standing in the way of progress right because how does progress happen it's through the mediation of thought to like are are like is progress if people are zombies no of course not progress is if people choose your way and like build up you know passion and a following to to collectively pursue these goals right so but it's 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 interesting that rich people are the ones who are both it's like they they're on both sides of it but i think that more rich people lately are pushing back against a culture of dogmatism that is i think primarily perpetuated although it's increasingly changing i think it's kind of primarily perpetuated by the quote-unquote progressive people on twitter and so on um, I'm not, I'm also worried, of course, about, uh, all of these really, you know, uh, uh, these laws forwarded by right-wing people that, uh, are, you know, literally just the mirror version of those things, or it's like, 
oh, well, people can't think these thoughts. We should ban these thoughts from universities, from classrooms, right? I think they're standing in progress too, okay? Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's just weird to see people like, uh, and like Elon Musk and, uh, and Ricky Gervais, um, people who, um, you know, you can be cynical about their motivations, but they're definitely having a cultural impact. There's, there's, there's definitely contradictory cultural impacts that rich people are having. Um, so that's really gotten me to think more about a kind of class reductionism that I can kind of fall into. Okay, that's all. We've been going for like two hours and <laughs> two hours and 45 minutes. I, uh, I will have all the stuff that I mentioned in the show notes. I hope you've enjoyed this. I, I love making these. Uh, and even if I'm talking into the void, I learn, I learn something by talking a lot. Like just listening to myself talk, uh, something will pop out and I'll be like, well, that doesn't make sense. Or something will pop out and I'll be like, wow, I'm brilliant. Um, but then later I'll be like, you know what? Actually, that doesn't make sense. Um, so, so yeah. Okay. Uh, please donate to Aliona's Venmo so that we can send the money to her cousin in Poland so that they, uh, they can send supplies and, and stuff to her family and to other people who are, who are struggling in Ukraine. Okay. Signing off. Uh, practice self-discipline. Don't deceive yourself. Until next time.